Welcome to July's episode of The Vegan Pod. This month, we're exploring how protest laws are impacting the vegan movement and discussing how we can be effective activists in the current political climate. A new Public Order Act for England and Wales became law in early May. This act has introduced new offences, lowered the bar for what is considered serious disruption and given the police new powers when it comes to monitoring protests. Since this act was brought in, there have been multiple arrests, including members of the animal rights group Animal Rising, fueling concerns that it's becoming increasingly difficult to protest effectively within the constraints of the law. Peaceful protest is a fundamental human right and a part of democracy and has been an integral part of the animal rights movement for decades. The vegan society and the vegan movement have, from the very beginning, existed to critique, challenge and seek reform of the current normal of our use of animals. People have marched peacefully for animals against specific forms of animal abuse for many years. Will this still be possible going forward and how are protesters already affected by laws and restrictions and how do activists navigate the line between effective protest and complying with the law? Big questions and here to help us explore those, we are joined today by Dr Alex Lockwood, spokesperson for the activist group Animal Rising and Dr Steve Cook, Associate Professor of Political Theory, whose research focuses on justice for non-human animals and the ethics of activism. Welcome both. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you both here. This is a big topic. There is a lot to cover, but we will start as we always start, which is with both of your journeys into veganism. Uh, and I love this bit because it's never the same answer and it's never simple. Alex, let's start with you. When did you become vegan? About 15 years ago, when I think three or four things happened all at once. One, I sort of, you know, adopted a rescue cat. Two, I sort of got through my, you know, start got through the 20s and started the 30s and went, do I want to live this next decade? This way I lived the previous decade. And so addressed some sort of health and sleep issues. And also I joined the running club. And actually in the running community 15, 20 years ago, actually the plant-based athletes were very much sort of on trend and rising. People like Scott Jurek and Brendan Brazier, people were introducing sort of plant-based diets and recovery into the sport. And I'd always been vegetarian. I'd, I'd been vegetarian for a long time. And uh, those things that all came together, came together with one final thing, which was uh, the rise of social media, and particularly Facebook back in like the early 2000s. And then that opened up a window onto scenes and visions and imagery that I hadn't seen before in terms of slaughterhouses, the production of sort of animals in the farming industry and those things together sort of adopting a different way of life living with a companion animal and seeing these things you know firsthand made me realize that actually I wanted to go further and actually become vegan uh, and then a few years after that become an advocate. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, when when it's a um, a kind of collision of things, isn't it, you know, that, that all happen that at the time you don't really notice those things are all building up and then suddenly it's like this sort of crescendo and you're like, oh, yeah, what was I what was I thinking before? <laughs> this is obviously the way. What about you, Steve? Uh, yeah, so I think I've lost count of how long I've been vegan now. I think it's close to 25 years. I grew up in quite sort of meat heavy communities uh, to some of my growing up in rural farming community area in in southern ireland but i've become vegetarian in university and i think it was a moment where i watched a one of those sort of undercover exposés of a slaughterhouse 
um, and I'd had friends who'd worked in slaughterhouses and I and vets who'd inspected them and I just I mean I after a while of being vegetarian and you see this the kind of what's going on in slaughterhouses and what's going on in particularly the dairy industry and my own personal experience of working in farms that did did dairy I started thinking well I can't be ethically vegetarian without being vegan this it just it, it you know there's so much cruelty in the dairy industry just as you know one example I started to think well, this this is quite often crueler than the beef industry and if I'm going to be vegetarian I've got to be vegan yeah but it was you know one of those moments just seeing that undercover expose was enough to push me into veganism um, yeah it was largely an emotional response at that point you know but I could tell that a lot of my sort of my, my reasons for being vegetarian required me to also be vegan mm. interesting so what motivated you then to focus your research on the ethics of activism what got you interested in activism so well it's two things really it was one I kind of wanted to you know that I said it was a, like an emotional response I wanted to know whether it was the right emotional response right I wanted to know whether there were good ethical reasons um, that could withstand scrutiny because you always get challenged all the time all the time when you're vegan or vegetarian and it's very tiring and the the, the arguments sounded you know they're, they're often really weak that are that put against you and I, I wanted to see if there were better arguments I wanted to test out and challenge them and and also at the same time when I was thinking about maybe doing a PhD I had friends who were engaged in illegal forms of activism they were breaking into butchers and laboratories and vandalizing things and I wanted to know for myself whether they were doing the right thing um so I I entered you know I did a PhD to find out to answer that question for myself yeah that's that's how I ended up researching activism it turns out to be a really interesting field that helps me also answer lots of questions about not just about our relationships with non-human animals but with other humans all of these things so I did a, a, a human rights MA before I did an animal rights PhD um, because I think all of these questions are connected Absolutely. And we'll get on. Well, we'll talk a lot about activism, obviously, but we'll we'll drill down into um, activism and, and those interesting facts and, and if it works and how it works as well. Um, Alex, members of Animal Rising have been arrested recently in relation, relation to the peaceful protests at the Grand National and the Greyhound Derby final. Are you able, able to tell us a little bit about the experience of those uh, activists and whether the protests were successful in their aims? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 118 uh, Animal Rising supporters were arrested at the Grand National. Uh, some were then later de-arrested, you know, the process of saying we didn't, you know, we shouldn't have done that <laughs> um, and let go. Um, and then more were also arrested in preemptive arrests before the Epsom Derby and the Greyhound Derby as well. One person, uh, was remanded in custody after the Epson Derby action. And actually, they were just released earlier this week. Wow. Um, after a plea hearing, a, sus a suspended sentence and a fine, with a lot of the detail then coming out. So the experience, I mean, the experience from the Grand National was pretty harsh. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we have a video up online detailing the police brutality, actually, of those arrests. One person was choked into unconsciousness. Um, the name calling, the abuse... Uh, was pretty rife, uh, the bruising, the treatment, the being dragged by uh, the handcuffs, so leaving incredible bruises on their hands, and then obviously into the into the custodial um, court system, being treated like, well, terrorists, really, uh, to some extent. And 
we have definitely we're worried although we're still absolutely committed to direct action there is you know there should we should all be worried about sort of the the changes in the law uh, in terms of their uh, fundamental crackdown uh, on our right to protest it's interesting because the Grand National was before these new tightened or, you know, um, I suppose, yeah, tightened, stronger laws came in. So it's almost like the culture, from what you described there, it was like the culture was already changing before the laws had changed, because that does sound very heavy handed, doesn't it? Well, I mean, if you ask uh, black communities, communities of colour, marginalised people, LGB communities, you know, like, it's not as if this is a new it's not as if you know white people have suddenly you know white activists have suddenly discovered that the police are heavy-handed or animal activists have suddenly you know discovered that you know the police have always been pretty brutal in many of their ways of treating people but yeah i think i think the police have been emboldened by a a a very sort of anti-democratic anti-politics anti-people government that, that wants to silence disagreement with their policies and with the policies and the laws that we have and the best way to do that is actually to crack down on the on the process uh and i think the police have been emboldened by that yet mm. this isn't this isn't a new thing is it though it's no. this is a part of a process that's been going on since well at least the 60s right we've had the environmental movement has been infiltrated by the police and treated as potential terrorist organization a threat to the state and the authority of the government for decades a, a, a tendency to characterize environmental movements and animal rights movements as terrorist movements to treat them like that and it's the succession of laws throughout a number of governments has just got worse and worse and worse um but this is yeah and it's part of a process it's not a, a new a new thing it's just getting worse do you think these new laws will uh, deter people from protesting do you think um seeing these increased arrests or will it fuel people's desire to you know protest peacefully because it is a right yeah well I think I think both I think both I think some people will be put off and I think more people other people will be sort of driven to it I mean what you've also got at the same time is obviously is the worsening crises that we're facing the nature crisis biodiversity crisis and obviously the climate crisis um the crisis of the poverty scandal in the UK you know the fact that only six percent of people in this country think we have a proper functioning you know political system and the urgency and emergency of what's facing us will actually drive more people to need to act, to want to act. And mm. that, you know, that is the that's the equal and opposite sort of, you know, uh, um, uh, energy and force that is being pressed down upon and uh, and suppressed by these new sort of draconian laws. So I think it, I think in a way it's both. You know, we we as an organisation, Animal Rising, still uh, committed to direct action because we know that disruptive protest is necessary. And, and it was interesting, actually, just go back to Steve's point, you know, this has been a process and it has, it has happened since at least the 60s. Uh, I, I was um, uh, lucky enough to hear a guy called Adam Frisk talk about his photography work d- documenting protest. He was at the Newbury bypass protests where you saw some of these imagery of similar police brutal, you know, uh, efforts to rip people out of the trees. Now, what was interesting and we're talking about sort of, you know, are, is protest effective? New, the Newbury bypass was built, mm. but, they, they, but they caused so much disruptive protest. They cost the government and the builders so much money, and they had so many headlines in the papers. And Swampy became a sort of national, you know, sentimentally loved figure. That the next seventy-seven bypass and road projects weren't built. 
interesting so yeah so you you know it's like you know so we understand that this history and culture and process of direct and disruptive action and we know that it's a part of changing the political and social environmental culture that we that you know that we need to the changes that we need to make so um in answer some people may be put off but other people will actually recognize that it's actually even more important now well, it's really interesting that you bring up Newbury Bypass. I mean, I remember that so vividly, and it was such a prolonged protest. I think probably we'd never seen it, hadn't seen anything like it since Green, Greenham Common. You know, it was so intense and and very sad when the bypass got built. I didn't know that stat about the roads that then didn't get built. Very interesting. So so leads quite nicely into my next question, which I'll ask you both, but I'll start with you, Steve, because you've done so much academic work into it fundamental question and it's a big one and I'm sure there's many answers really but does protesting work and, and I ask this sort of I suppose with the backdrop of what we've seen of this real public um kind of uh pushback on protesters with the stop oil campaign and this sort of disruption that people are feeling which doesn't even feel like a lot of disruption I mean I don't use the M25 I don't know what that would be like if it was disrupting my daily work but there seems to be a lot of pushback against it so I'm interested in does protesting work and you know can it be more of a negative thing because you get people not on your side what what do you think to that right so I mean I think one of the, the problems we have with any any society is is there tends to be uh, and this is a well-documented like social and political scientific trend that, that there's a, a conservative bias and it's a small c conservative bias in uh in in political communities right it's really it's actually quite difficult to change things substantially people are averse to taking risks and and it's it's hard to 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 make progress to change change society um and you you have positions where you get entrenched minorities within democratic communities whose voices are never really listened to or their preferences are never properly taken account of and one way to re- respond to this sort of innate sort of bias it's sometimes called stickiness in political communities is to show people how seriously you take the issue right? and protests can shock people out of their their complacency right, it, right. you need a, a short sharp shock like a like a cold bucket of water to make people realize actually no there's a serious issue going on People really care about it. It really matters to them, even if it doesn't matter to you very much. And maybe you ought to take their interests a bit more seriously. Now, there are some groups who respond to that kind of action more negatively. right? If you are from a more uh, authoritarian ideology, if you adopt a more authoritarian or conservative ideology, you're resistant to change and you're resistant to challenge. You have a set of values that say, actually, you know, the community really matters. The challenges to the community undermine its status, can erode it it's a real threat to our existence. And those kind of um, groups and ideologies react quite negatively to many forms of protest. So those people tend to not be persuaded very well, um, but other groups can respond quite positively to protest. So you need different strategies to communicate to the different groups of people that you're trying to persuade. You need some forms of protest when there's injustice going on, when society is not paying attention to interests of, of certain groups, or if there's a, a democratic deficit, you know, but, you know, it's not going to appeal to everyone. No. Okay. And what would you, you're nodding there, Alex, um, would you in general agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it's not just a strategy of like the right message to the right people, which I completely agree with, um, but it's also the ways in which um, the strategies of protest and direct action are 
uh, interwoven with your other strategies, your, you know, your political strategy, you know, how you do that. So if I just give three really quick examples, like Extinction Rebellion had won within six months because everything that they aimed to do, get the government to declare a climate emergency, for example, move the Overton window, mobilise millions of people on the street in ways that hadn't been done before, they'd achieved in the first six months. And if you look at Insulate Britain, you know, the, the protests that were on the M25 and did shut down roads, 80 or 90% name recognition within two weeks. Absolutely everyone hated them, apparently. And then a year, two years later, you've got Caitlin Moran writing in the Times saying, they were right. This is a no brainer. We need to do this. And then it's in, you know, government, it's in party political manifestos. And the third one that's just happened down in Cornwall is that a group of activists in Cornwall got together and said, we want to have a people's assembly on sort of what we need for our county in Cornwall. And they, they did that. But what they also did was combine that strategy, the strategy of people deliberating together with direct action protests. And they went and sat in and occupied the council um, building, you know, while the councillors were there to meet. And doing that has got them regular people's assemblies that are feeding into the council, you know. So it's not that, just protest on its own. It's a, a strategy yeah. that, that backs that up and is woven through it. Interesting. So, with Animal Rising, you know, the way I like to think about it, you know, like if you if you've read This is an Uprising by the Paul and Mark Engler and you and, and you know about momentum driven organising and you know this theory, these theories of Erica Chenoweth, we need three and a half percent of the population to mobilise to bring about change. What she also says in that and actually what is there in Dan uh, Daniel Santola's work on the social movement of social norms. Um, you know, you need about 20, 25 percent of people who are actively supporting that three and a half percent. For me, for us, you know, what I, I don't like to frame it as like, oh, we've got to build from zero to three and a half percent of the population. The, the RSPCA Animal Kindness Index just came out and said 69 percent of the UK identifies animal lovers as seven mm. in ten. For me, I'm, I, I want to shake down that, se that 70 percent into a 25 percent. So one third of them, you know, to actually go, you know what, we're going to live by those values. We're not just going to say it. We're going to actually live by it. And for me, that's actually a, it's a massive number. It's about 14 million people in the country, but it's much more achievable when you start from we're going to take this massive 40 million and shake them down into a 30, 14 million. You know, that for me is 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 really what we're we're trying to do. And so mm -hmm. what's the strategy for that? And I do believe direct action process is a large part of that strategy because we got the grand national protest on the front cover of eight Sunday newspapers and we dominated the news agenda that weekend. And I know people are still coming forward and saying, you know, om omni eaters, people who don't, you know, like protest, they're still coming forward and saying, Oh, you did a really good job there. And I'm thinking about this. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's always a, such an interesting and fascinating kind of conundrum. The, the amount of people that absolutely love animals. I mean, this is what they'd say. If you ask them, they'd love animals. They would cry at the idea of, you know, Im certain images like, you know, dogs not being rescued. You know, people share stuff on Facebook and go, oh, there's this wonderful rescue centre, you know, you must don donate or whatever. And yet they still eat meat. And I, I'm always, you know, completely flabbergasted by this um, disconnection, this speciesism, you know, and so you're right, there should be a huge body of the country that absolutely wants the same things we want, and yet they don't. So it's, it's interesting. The other thing that's interesting in regards to, to protest is a lot of the times when people are protesting, they're protesting about the authorities, legislation, organisations, 
um, and they're not really, you know, they're not really asking people to make a change themselves because the change is maybe something that can't be made, you know, on a one-to-one -one basis. But with veganism, you know, people can make those changes. So I'm interested to know from 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 you both whether with animal rights it's a slightly easier win with protesting because you can get individuals on side to make those changes themselves even if they can't make the changes in the legislation or the laws or whatever they can actually say well I'm going to do my bit by stop eating animals do you think that makes it a bit easier Steve? Well I mean I'd, I don't know I think I think many of these other forms of protest are also protesting against you know what we regard as moral wrongs right and we can all not do those things right if we think something's morally wrong then we can make a choice not to do it but i think the animal rights movement and the kind of protests that we see are not about you know persuading individuals necessarily this is about a societal change that recognizes the moral status of non-human animals and says they're entitled to rights and and those ought to be protected in law fundamental rights the state should protect them not have to rely on the personal preferences of individual members of society mm. and that's that's quite a it's quite a big ask, right? That's a, a really fundamental radical change. So yes, you can get individual people to change. And, and uh, you know, if we if if we build up that percentage that Alex has talked about, maybe that that's enough of a a political community or, or constituency to persuade legislators to make the legal changes that are necessary. Uh, so I think a lot of the protest is, uh, you know, probably building up movements to get political change not about persuading individuals so it's a short-term persuade individuals long-term aim for the changes in legislation mm. just to say I, I actually think I think animal rights and vegan uh, and animal advocates have a harder job because you know there, there is always that case that we're advocating for others not for ourselves the book I wrote about um, the pig in thin air which is about the, the link between climate change and the food we eat was actually all about identity and identification and those are the things that really matter to us because they tell us who we are so if you have been socially you know like the work of Matthew Cole and Kate Stewart's really important here how we're socialized as children into understanding ourselves in particular relationships to other animals um, in, in certain ways that that identification of who we are our social group belonging is the toughest thing to change and actually food is right at the heart of that. And our relationship with others is right at the heart of that. So it's a really, really difficult thing to change. Yeah, I think it goes back to that point that you made about the the, the meat paradox, right? Where, where people say they love animals and eat them nevertheless. And, and part of the reason they do that is because they've got something precious to themselves. It's connected with their identity. You know, whether it's masculinity, right? Eating a steak is masculine and your whole, like I've got to consume animal protein to feel powerful. Uh, or it's about your uh, your ethnic identity or your national identity where eating certain meats at, uh, or, or meals at certain times of the year and certain celebrations are part of your religious or your or your national identity or something like that this you know, getting people to ch change that is 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 really difficult um so I, yeah I completely agree with that that last point it's about more than just a preference in some respects it's about you know, an existential threat yeah. for some people. Yeah, 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 I hear that. Uh, so let's get back to activism and, uh, and in particular, these new laws. Are people going to have to change? How are they going to navigate these new laws and be able to protest effectively? I mean, what, what, what does this mean in real terms? Because as, 
as you've both discussed, protesting has always been a difficult and, um, uh, you know, it comes with peril and, and threat and uh, potential violence to people, you know, from the police and other communities. And, you know, it's a difficult thing. Now you've got this added layer that um, you could get arrested for doing much less. Um, mm. how, how can people navigate that? And Well, I mean, one one problem, I think, is there's an often a criticism that's been levelled at the environmental movement in recent times is that it's the middle class preserve, right? You see all those stories about people having a picnic and eating hummus on a on a on a protest. And that's also in in some of the sort of more recent protests about uh, the statues of wrongdoers and slavers. You see that same kind of thread going through. And I think it, what as the government increases the burdens that are placed on people for protesting, then you're going to end up with a narrower pool of people who can protest. They're the kind of people who can bear the burdens, who can deal with having you know a criminal record that says you protested or you or or they're unable to work or they can take the time off or they can defend themselves you're going to get uh, uh, you know more middle class people and then the criticism is oh it's a middle class movement well of, of course it's going to be because the the burdens for people who aren't middle class to deal with the kind of sanctions that are placed on them are much higher mm. much harder for them to protest so yeah, I think it's going to narrow the pool of people who can effectively join in those protests, and and then that's going to exclude people from protesting, who who ought to have a say, and that's a real worry. And do you think, Alex, it'll change the nature of the protest? Yeah, I, in a way, I think it will. I mean, I'm not basing that on research. I'm basing that coming out of sort of like the lived experience of working in this area. Uh, my 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 understanding of it, and my the way I'm looking at it, is that actually there needs to be a, a bigger aligned movement of people who can both take action and those who both can't for, for a number of reasons they're coming from more high risk marginalized communities um where we actually need to come together and, and recognize that democracy is actually under threat not just yeah. animal lives not just the environment you know the crisis all the crisis we face um a good friend of mine says this a lot of time all the crisis we face are crises in governance you know, we have answers to the food system and the animal exploitation. We have an answer to that. What we don't have is the governance structures to make mm. these much more common sense solutions uh, happen. You know, so what we actually need is like, a, you know, a, a, and what may happen in response to some of these laws. And so answering your question, will the nature of protest change? The nature of protest might become more about um, uh, bridge building and alliances and collaborative responses. Uh, to make them bigger and bolder so that we can actually tackle the government and what this question is really about because it's about a crisis in government governance the democracy itself is under threat because the people who have the power the political classes and the billionaire elites are the ones who don't want to lose that power as we see you know we're living in a self-terminating system at the moment with the climate emergency you know what we have now will come to an end in relation getting back to animals and, and animal advocacy and animal protest i in a way i think that's the one where it will change least in a way because we still want to go and rescue animals you know we still want mm. to uh, raise attention to sports um that are not really sports but are exploitation and aggravated trespass and things like that are are uh, i mean aggravated trespass was brought in by the criminal justice bill in response to newbury in fact i think that i think that's right i think i understand that and these new public order bill, you know, it, it talks about serious disruption 92 times or 94 times as a way to sort of, you know, emphasize what it is that the government is trying to crack down on, i.e. any protest that's effective. Mm. 
Mm. So uh, I think to make protest effective, you think, well, what's the strategy for making a protest effective? And one of the ways of doing that is strength in numbers and, and, and um, alliances and collaboration across the entire movement for justice. Mm. Uh, I was going to ask, actually, are there any benefits to the new bill, to the new changes to the law? But you, I think you sort of touched on some of those there that, that protesting might become more about bridge building and collaboration and and you know working together that might be it's not it's not a it's not a direct um, positive of the law but it's a, 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 an offshoot you know it's an outcome isn't it if, if, if it changes and it changes the way people protest it there might be some positive to that I'm just I'm always about the silver lining me <laughs> I think it's a reach um... is it okay Steve <laughs> I mean Yes, people come together when society becomes more authoritarian, but we're getting a more authoritarian society. And that's yeah. that's not a good thing. And it, no. it, it's, it's it's kind of disappointing. It's very worrying and disappointing that, that there's no commitment to reverse these these really draconian measures in the next from from Labour as well. So I, I think this is a sort of a, a trend we're also seeing in society. British society is often in some respects quite small C conservative again, quite authoritarian in some respects. And, you know, it might be a lack of you know a, a attachment to good forms of democracy to to good voting systems to more sort of liberal values that we we ought to be you know pushing for it's mm. not just a yeah as alex has said not just about animals this is a wider problem to do with you know how the state responds and how the population regards mm. diversities of opinion yeah um, Steve, you mentioned earlier um, when you were much younger, having friends who broke into butchers and and did illegal things. Um, is there an ethical argument for breaking the law in order to progress the animal rights movement? Yeah, so largely the kinds of protests that we've been talking about are illegal forms of protest, right? The government's made pretty much any kind of form of protest. Walking slowly, being in the company of other people is illegal, right? Um, so we're talking about illegal protests, and and I think there are very often are good arguments for law un, unlawful protests right um when whenever there's a case of injustice you need to be able to do something about it right how do you respond to injustice one way you respond is democratically you say look there's an injustice here we ought to change the law to make things less unjust right and democratic processes are good for that because they recognize the equal status of all the citizens recognize their autonomy give them a say in things an equal say um but when that's not working when people don't have an equal say, when you have those persistent minorities or when special interest groups are able to uh, exert power using you know, their economic might to influence democratic spaces and, and change the equal status. So like the meat lobby spends an awful lot of money on, on influencing democratic systems, far more than animal rights charities and organizations are able to spend. So there's an unfairness in that democratic process and there's a whole group of voices that aren't recognized right non-human animals we have to act yeah. on behalf of them they don't have an equal say or any kind of like status legal status um for their own sakes in our society so from an animal rights perspective we have a whole massive community of of potential citizens almost who don't have a voice don't have a say aren't represented properly in political communities and those communities are unjust Right. And, mm. and if things are unjust, then that often generates a, a right or a permission to engage mm. in protest. Right. So and it's the same sort of protest. So the same same logic of the argument we might see from the suffragettes. Right. Women's status is not recognized. 
mm. or an anti-slavery protest. People's mm. equal status is not recognized. And so the legitimacy of the state is called into question. The, the legitimacy of particular laws that don't recognize the moral standing of non-human animals, you know, is called into question. Now, you might think, well, maybe we ought to do the democratic thing first. You might ought have to try other kind of routes. But if those, you know, persistently fail to work, yeah. and that ingested carries on, then there's another argument there for engaging yeah. those kind of protests. Um, for those people listening who want to get involved in vegan activism, animal rights activism, where is the best place to start, Alex? Uh, you can come to our March for Animals and Nature on August the 26th in London. Uh, you can go to the animalrising.org website and get involved. Um, but you can go to any organisation, actually. You know, we're, we're you know, trying to build like a lot of alignment across the movement. So become a vegan society member, you know, take part in Veganuary or support Veganuary, join Animal Equality, Viva, all of these organisations. For direct action, uh, animalrising.org, we run non-violence training because we're a completely non-violent group, obviously. And after that non-violence training, you can be um, become part of the you know uh, groups who go and do direct action and we're, we're currently sort of reflecting upon that in the next couple of weeks actually of where we're going next in terms of building a mass movement because for us as Steve as, you know really echoing what Steve said there really agree with everything you said there about sort of building a political constituency of people uh, and we want to do that on the mass scale so we want you know Nancy a nurse from Nantwich and Ed, Eddie the electrician from Exeter to actually you know to go Oh, yeah, no, that's what we want as well, you know, because actually we do love animals. We do care about nature. We do, you know, I, I cringe and I really it hurts me when I see animals killed on the roads. You know, like we, we want better laws for all of the uh, the animals to a better, safer, more secure animal free farming system. And we're only going to do that by disrupting the injustices that we're facing. Yeah. Well, it seems like a good place to end. It's been a fascinating chat. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Alex. Thanks both for joining us for this very important discussion. Uh, it's given us some real insight into the importance of activism and how activists are being affected by the law. So thank you so much. For more information about Animal Rising, you can visit animalrising.org or follow at Animal Rising on Twitter and at animal.rising on Instagram. And we ask you, has your activism been affected by laws around protesting? Are you feeling inspired to get involved in activism? We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can share them with us on Twitter at Vegan Society, on Instagram at The Original Vegan Society or on Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to The Vegan Pod so you don't miss next month's episode. Thank you both. Thank you.